Before we get to the text for today's sermon, I want to fill you in on what has happened chronologically in the life of Jesus. John the Baptist has just been killed by King Herod, and it doesn't take long for word to get to Jesus about this tragic death. In fact, some of John's disciples come straight to Jesus and give him this news. And you remember why John was killed. He had the courage to speak the truth to the king. King Herod had stolen his brother's wife. Her name was Herodias. Herod had his own wife, but he disregarded her, and he stole away his brother's wife. He was then living in an adulterous relationship with her, and John the Baptist called him out on that, saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Well, Herod didn't like that. And certainly Herodias didn't like that. John ended up in prison and Herodias began to look for an opportunity to silence John for good. Mark chapter 6 verse 19 says that she had a grudge against John and she wanted to kill him. And she finally got her opportunity. Her daughter danced in front of Herod and his guests. And I am quite sure that it was not the kind of dance that you might see at a, at a Sunday school picnic. It was a very seductive dance. The text says that it pleased Herod and his guests. In other words, they are lost in their lust. And Herod, in his drunken state, says to this young girl who's dancing in front of him, I'll give to you whatever you ask of me, even up to half of my kingdom. So what she do? She goes to her mom and she asks for advice. What should I ask of him? And her mom gives advice. She comes back to Herod and she says that she wants the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. And that was the end of John the Baptist. He was faithful until death. He never wavered in speaking the truth. So this news comes to Jesus, and it's very hard news for him to receive. You remember, Jesus and John were related with one another. They were cousins. But they were more than just cousins. They were friends. Scripture doesn't say for sure, but I, I would imagine that John and, and Jesus grew up together. They played with one another as their families got together for family reunions. It was John who would later baptize Jesus. And it was John's ministry and John's preaching that prepared the way for the Messiah. Jesus spoke of him as the greatest man born of woman. And so the death of John comes to Jesus as a very crushing blow, as well as to the disciples, and they needed time to grieve. Let me read to you from Mark chapter 6, verses 31 and 32. This is Jesus about to speak to his disciples. He says to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. Now, I think even from those two verses, there are a few points that I'd like to just mention to you that would be helpful to us 
during a time in which we might lose a loved one. I won't spend a lot of time here, but I think that there are some points worth noting. First of all, Jesus gathered around himself his close friends, his disciples. He did not isolate himself from people. He chose not to bear this burden alone. And that's something that we need to remember. When we lose a loved one, it may be our tendency to just want to get away and be completely by ourselves and isolate ourselves from people. And Jesus is teaching us that's not the way to handle grief. Rather, we need to allow those who are close to us to come and minister to us. Let me give to you a second point here. At the same time, you see, particularly later in this text, that Jesus did find some time to get away to be with God by himself. And so he has this balance of allowing people close to him, those that he loved, to come near him, and he's receiving encouragement from them. At the same time, he's finding some time to get alone with God, to be refreshed by God, to be encouraged by God and to talk with him. Point number three. He said, let's get away and rest a while. Jesus knew the importance of physical rest. When our body wears down and our spirit wears down too, then something is going to break if we don't get some rest. And so these three points, very helpful to us. When we lose a loved one, allow people to come near you and encourage you. And yet find some time to get alone with God and allow his spirit to renew you. And then get some physical rest. But let's move on from there. Let's look at what's happening in this particular time in Jesus' life. Can you put yourself in the shoes of the disciples and Jesus? You're tired. You're spent, you have just received bad news, and you are saddened over the death of John the Baptist. You need some time to grieve. You need to get away from the crowds. And so you get into a boat, and you begin to head across the Sea of Galilee to a secluded area. It is your intention to get some R&R. And it's going to be so good. You have longed for this time. You have needed this time. It's like when you're working a job for a a long period of time and you've got vacation time coming and, and finally that time arrives and you are so glad to get it. That's where these fellows are at. They're in the boat. They're going across the Sea of Galilee and suddenly somebody from within the boat points towards the seashore and says, look, what in the world are they doing? And that gets your attention. And you look in the direction that they are pointing and you see what they see. The crowd that you have just left behind is running around the lake to try and get to where you are going. And all of a sudden, this downtime that you have been looking forward to, it seems like it is in jeopardy. And you watch, and the other disciples are watching with you. And I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that there is some groaning going on inside of that boat. There's, there's some complaining. Jesus is not involved in that. But you are, and the disciples are, and you're watching the crowd, and it's growing bigger and bigger as they're running around the perimeter of of the shoreline. 
As they go, there's more people joining their ranks. And, and it looks like they are actually going to beat you to your spot that you were heading to. Let me read to you verse 33. The people saw them going and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. <laughs> Unbelievable. So much for your R&R, but I want you to note how Jesus was reacting to all of this. Verse 34, it says, When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. I'll use the word unbelievable again. <laughs> unbelievable about Jesus, that he didn't complain, he didn't begrudge the crowd coming after him. Instead, he felt compassion towards them. There's that word again. That word that describes Jesus. He felt their pain. He was sympathetic towards them. He was moved to meet their needs. He's putting his own needs on the back burner. Instead, he's putting their needs first. And the scripture says that he begins to teach them Many things. One of the other accounts says that he's also doing some miracles amongst the people. Let me read to you verses 35 and 36. When it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and is, is, it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. It seems like a reasonable idea that the disciples have. In fact, you can commend the disciples at this point because most of the time they're thinking about themselves. But in this particular instance, they're actually thinking about the people. They've, they're, they're, they're understanding the hour is late. It's past supper time. Surely the people are hungry. They understand there's no Wendy's. There's no McDonald's nearby. The people are going to have to walk distance to get to the eating places. And so they say to Jesus, we need to let them go so that they can get something to eat. And I'm sure they're hungry too. It's been a long day for them. Let me read to you verse 37. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. I'm quite sure this came as a shock to the disciples. Keep in mind, this is no small crowd that Jesus was suggesting that they give food to. Verse 44 says there were 5,000 men. In this crowd. That's just the men. That doesn't include the women and the children who are in this crowd. Mark Moore, in his commentary, suggests that there were possibly 15,000 people in this crowd, and Jesus is saying to them, You give them something to eat? I mean, it's not surprising to see the disciples' response. The, the second part of verse 37 says, and they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? I have a footnote in my Bible that says the denarius, the denarii is one day's wages. 
And so what they're really saying here to Jesus is, shall we go and spend 200 days wages to buy them bread? Shall we go and spend eight months worth of wages and buy these people bread? John's account of this story tells us that it's actually Philip who asked this question, and John adds just a little bit more to his account than what Mark does. I'll read it to you. It's John chapter 6, verse 7. It says this, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. So it wasn't like this this amount of money would buy enough bread to fill the, fill the whole crowd up to the brim. The truth is, even if they spent this amount of money, it would be barely enough that each person would even get one bite. And the disciples, they're looking at their bank account. They know what their bank account is. They know they don't have this kind of money. And it's Philip who has the courage to speak up to Jesus. And he says... We don't have enough money to feed all of these people. Well, Jesus ignores what Philip says. And he has something else to say to the group. Let me read to you the first part of verse 38. It says, he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. What he's saying is, go take inventory of how much food you have amongst this crowd. And you know what they come back with. They come back with just a small boy's lunch. Five loaves of bread and two fish. And I'm thinking as I read this, had my wife, Cindy, been in this crowd, they would have come back with a whole lot more food in their hand than five loaves and two fish. Because I'm thinking, when we as a family go on a trip, she always brings food for us. I mean, she's making sure that we're not going hungry. She has, uh, she has ham sandwiches oftentimes, or she'll have cheese and crackers, and she'll have some fruit, she'll have some Snickers bars, and uh, just all kinds of snacks for us to eat on if we're going on a trip, even if it's a, a one-day trip. And there will be a cooler full of drinks for us to enjoy. But this crowd... Nobody except one little boy came prepared with food in their hand. One little boy's mama prepared him a sack lunch, and it's not a very big lunch. It's just enough for him, five loaves of bread and two fish. Let's read the end of there of verse 38. And when they found out, they said, five and two Fish. That was not enough to feed this entire crowd. Let me read to you from Mark Moore's commentary about this little boy's lunch. He said, the loaves are not like our loaves. They are small, flat, and round, perhaps not more than four inches in diameter. They are barley loaves, the food of the poor, but not necessarily poor food. The fish are probably pickled and used as relish for his bread, not the main part of his meal. The closest thing we would have today would be canned sardines. Ah, I can't stand those things. 
It was just enough to satisfy a little boy, but pretty pathetic in the shadow of this crowd. That didn't matter to Jesus. The fact that it was just a small boy's lunch. Let me read on to you, verse 39 and following. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves. And he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them all. And he divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up 12 full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. It's absolutely amazing, isn't he? As, as I read this passage of Scripture this last week, I have to tell you what came to my mind. And sometimes I have to admit to you, my mind is a little messed up. <laughs> because as I read this, my mind drifted to those times that usually Cindy and I, if we go to Sam's, we'll go together and uh, you've been there before, Sam's uh, there in Joplin or Kansas City. And, and uh, we'll be walking around getting uh, bulk groceries. But there's these little stands in the store. And somebody's behind that stand and they're, they're giving you little morsels of food, which are for the purpose of whetting your appetite, getting you interested. They're trying to sell you that which they are serving, but they're just giving you a little piece and it's never enough for me. You know, and I, I, I usually like what I'm getting a taste of and I want to stand there and say, I, I want another piece. But Cindy won't let me do that. It, it's embarrassing to her. And so I'll just go from one stand to the next and get a, get a taste of all of this food, but it's never enough to fill me up. And I'm thinking, that is not the case on this day with Jesus. Because he's got this little boy's lunch. And he prays to the Father. And he begins to take this little boy's lunch and he multiplies it in his hand. He gives it to the disciples who in turn give it to those people that are there on the hillside. And the scripture says that they ate until they were filled up. I mean, it wasn't just a little bite. They ate until they were satisfied, the Scripture says. The New Living Translation treats verse 42 this way. It says they all ate as much as they wanted. This, we're talking a smorgasbord of fish and bread. And they all ate until they were completely filled. There was no room left even for ice cream. (laughs) The point is, Jesus is our great provider and satisfier. It's it's interesting to me, this story of the feeding of the 5,000 is found in all four of the Gospels. And there are not many points of Jesus' life that you can say that about. 
I mean, lots of things about the life of Jesus. You can read about it in two gospel accounts or maybe even in three gospel accounts. But very few things can you read about in all four gospel accounts. Keep in mind where we are at now in the life of Jesus. We have just finished... As we read this text today, and we learn that it's the Passover time, we have finished the second full year of Jesus' ministry. He only has one year left in his life. And up until this point, there's only one other event that has been described in all four Gospels, and that was the baptism of Jesus. That was at the beginning of his ministry. Now, two years later, we are learning about the feeding of the 5,000 from all four gospel writers. We'll go another whole year until we find another event in Jesus' life where all four of the gospel writers will join in and tell about it. And that will be at the beginning of the next Passover when Jesus comes into the city. The, the, we call it the, uh, the triumphal entry. <laughs> About slipped my mind there. The triumphal entry. That's the next time that all four gospel writers will join in on on recording an event in Jesus' life. And so I'm wondering, what is there that is so important about this particular event, the feeding of the 5,000, that all four gospel writers would weigh in on it? Why would God have them all four write about this event? Well, my guess... And that's, that's basically what it is, is a guess. My guess is that he wanted us to know without a doubt that he is able to provide for us our every need. He cares about us. And he will provide for us. And I hope you hear me say that. I hope you see the truth of that in Scripture. He cares about you and he, he will provide for you. It's in Him that our needs will be satisfied. And so why do we worry? Why do we fret and get all uptight? I think it's because we forget what He has done. What He's done for us in our past. How He has provided for us. And we forget that... That he is the great provider. We take our eyes off of him. Did you note from the text here that there were 12 baskets of food left over after everyone had eaten to their fill? One basket for each of the 12 disciples. He is the great provider. And it's not the first time that God has provided for his people. In a miraculous way. You go back into the Old Testament. And you see evidence of this time and time again. As the people wandered through the wilderness. God provided for them miraculously. He provided manna for them. He provided water from the rock. He provided quail for them. You look at the life of Elijah. And there's a famine in the land. A famine of three years. Where the rain has not come. And the land is being burned up. And Elijah is instructed by God to go by the brook Cherith. And it's there that he has water 
to drink, and God provides food for him through the ravens. The ravens bring him what he, what he needs to eat. And eventually the brook runs dry. And so God instructs Elijah to go to the widow from Zarephath. And you remember, her flour and her oil would not run out. God provided miraculously for Elijah. And he will provide for you and me too, if we trust him. I want to read to you the next passage of Scripture here from Mark chapter 6. Beginning with verse 45, it says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. Finally, Jesus is going to get some time alone with God. You remember, he's wanted that time. But the crowd, through him and the disciples, a curve, they ran around the lake and beat them to that secluded area. And so he has not got his, his alone time with God yet. And so after he has taught them for the day, he's performed some miracles, he's fed them, he then sends the crowd away. And he sends his disciples on across the sea in a boat, and Jesus goes up onto the mountain for the purpose of being alone with God and praying to God. I hope as you read through the Gospels that you will not miss the number of times that Jesus gets alone with his heavenly Father. He needed that time. Let me read to you some of the verses that give account of that. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, it says, And in the early morning, while it was still dark, he arose and went out and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. Luke chapter 5, verse 16 says, But he himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Luke 6, verse 12, And it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. But that was, the, that was before he chose the disciples to come and follow him. And here again in Mark chapter 6, we see him getting away by himself to pray. We need, we need that kind of time too. I mean, if Jesus needed that kind of time, how much more do you and I need that kind of time? And we understand that Jesus had to make this kind of time happen. He was intentional about it. And if he hadn't been intentional, it wouldn't have happened. Just like in your life and my life, we are busy people and we are, we are going here and we are going there. And it's so easy for us to let this kind of time just be put on the back burner. I'll get with God later. I'll talk with God later. And later never comes. And we go days and days and days without being with the Father. And I'm just encouraging you to learn from the example of Jesus. Be intentional about setting some time aside and making this kind of time happen. That you and the Father get alone with one another. And you, as Jesus in this case, can be refreshed in your spirit. You can be renewed. He needed that. We need that. 
Let me read to you verses 47 and 48. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass them by. Uh, just Just a side note. The fourth watch of the night is somewhere between the hours of 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And so we're, we're talking, Jesus had some quality time, some, some length of time in prayer that night. But his eyes were never very far away from his disciples who were out in the middle of the sea and they're having trouble. The wind is... rolling those waves, and they're struggling. And so he leaves the mountain, he gets down on the water, and he walks on the water towards them. Verses 49 and 50. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. You can't blame these guys for being frightened. They've never seen anybody walking on the water. And here comes Jesus strolling on the water towards them. It says they're frightened. How did he do that? There is no scientific explanation as to how Jesus walked on the water. But I'll tell you how he did it. He did it because he is God. And he can do anything that he wants to do. He can even walk on the water because he is God. And this is interesting. In verse 50, he identifies himself to these fellows. He's saying to them, don't be afraid. It is I. And here's the interesting point. The phrase, it is I, in the original language would have sounded more like this. Don't be afraid. I am. Do you recognize that? From the Old Testament, when, God, when Moses was at, this, at the burning bush and he's wondering who it is that is behind this burning bush and God identifies himself to Moses as I am. You tell them I am has sent you into Egypt. And here in this instance, Jesus is walking on the water and he's saying to them, don't be afraid. I am. He's using the name of God in reference to himself. And I'll tell you what he's saying here is simply this. He is saying, I am God. No mere man can walk on the water. Only God can do that. And here's something else. Matthew's account adds some details to the story that Mark leaves out. Maybe you recall, Peter 
as he's in the boat, realizes that it is Jesus out there on the water. And he said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Matthew 14, 29, Jesus responded to him with just one word, come. He invited Peter to come join him on the water, and so Peter did. He stepped out of the boat, and he was walking on the water until he took his eyes off of Jesus. Verse, 20, verse 30 of Matthew 14 says this, But seeing the wind, he became afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And so Jesus reached out his hand. And took a hold of Peter and lifted him up and saved him. Now, there's some things that we could emphasize from this story. Three things I, would, I just want to briefly mention to you. One, Peter had the courage to step out of the boat. And it's easy for you and me to stay in the boat. It's easy for us to stay in our comfort zone. But if we will be willing to step out of the boat and keep our eyes on Jesus, we may find ourselves being able to do those things that we never dreamed possible. The key is keep your eyes on Jesus. Point number two. When Peter took his eyes off of Jesus, he sunk. And the same will be true for you and me. If we take our eyes off of Jesus, we will sink. We will fail. But you you notice from the text that he took his eyes off of Jesus and he fixed his eyes on the storm, which is so easy to do. It's easy for us to put our eyes on the magnitude of the problem rather than to keep our eyes on Jesus. We just need to remember that Jesus is bigger than any storm we face. And number three, Jesus rebuked Peter for his little faith. And probably he'd like to do that with some of us. He wants us to have faith. I I imagine there's times for all of us that he would like to just rebuke us and say, where is your faith? I mean, he's given us every reason in the world to have faith. And so we need to have faith in him, to keep our eyes on him. Let me read to you from Matthew's account, chapter 14, verses 32 and 33. When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. It's the point I made to you just a couple of weeks ago. That when we see Jesus for who he really is, we will worship him. We, we, We won't be able to help ourselves but worship him. When we see him as the one who can walk on water... When we see him as the one who can take a small boy's lunch and multiply it to feed 15,000 people. When we see him in all of his glory. When we see him on the throne. When we see him as one who is compassionate. When we see him in his grace and in his love and in his holiness. When we see him in his power, we will worship him. And so... 
Open your eyes. Set your eyes on Jesus. And worship him. Let's pray together. Thank you, dear God, that you have revealed your Son to us in Scripture. And you revealed him to the world 2,000 years ago by his becoming a man. He came here and he did so many incredible things, and there were eyewitnesses that have left the account written down for us. So, Lord, could I ask you that you would increase our faith. Help us to see him more clearly. To worship him, to love him, to serve him, to commit our lives to him. We pray this in Jesus' name.